0: This is the best of Cartel Conversations, a podcast of the Micro Model Railroad Cartel. This is episode 29 for August 2022. Ian and I will be back next month for episode 30, and we hope you enjoy some of our favorite segments from past episodes.
1: Today, we have a guest on the show. We are joined by one of the most prolific micro layout builders, Bob Hughes. Bob and I's paths have crossed many times on model railway forums over the years. And I like to think that uh, if I'd still been living in the UK, I'm sure we would have met in person many times at shows and maybe even drank a pint or two in the bar afterwards. So it's great to actually say hello, Bob Hughes. Uh, welcome to the show. Hello.
2: let to be on it. I was just going to say hello, Tom, as well.
0: Yeah. Hello, Bob.
1: I
2: haven't yep. got Tom in picture. I've got Ian
0: in picture, but I haven't got Tommy in picture. So well, <laughs> that's because I have my picture off. I have a face for radio, so that's the best way <laughs> to know. describe it, okay?
1: <laughs> so, we've got to start at the beginning. With At the beginning, Bob, what's your earliest memories of model railways?
2: Oh, well, when I was a little toddler, we had uh, a battered old tin plate clockwork presume it was O scale that um, used to run on the front room floor but uh, my mother decided it was dangerous because it had sharp edges on it and it got consigned to the bin. Um, Christmas 1961 I think it was Christmas I got a, a Triang train set which was the, the little 040 Nelly mm-hmm. with a couple of wagons and a brake van and uh, that's what set me off on proper model railways with the electric control instead of a key to wind it up oh,
1: yeah. oh that you still have the tin plate now what would that be worth I mean,
2: eh? i haven't i've got some t- old tin plate but it's not the original stuff I, I don't even know what make it was i don't know if it was Hornby or something else but i can remember it, it had a it had a streamlined steam engine which only had four wheels it was sort of like an a4 body on, an, on a, uh-huh. a chassis <laughs> round ah. and round and round and made a lot of noise.
1: Uh, oh, it didn't matter what the, what shape the train was back in those days. Scale modelling wasn't uh wasn't no, was, thing. No, it was a
2: train on the track going uh-huh.
1: somewhere. Yeah. Uh, oh, that we still have that innocence sometimes, you know.
2: And um, when I was a child, my parents used to live next to the railway line
1: mm-hmm.
2: into town. So I can still remember steam working on the goods train. It's oh. electric, but
1: uh-huh. I can still so, remember
2: steam goods.
1: Because you did actually, you worked for the railways, didn't you? So how did that affect your attitude to modelling them? When I left
2: school, I went and got a job with BR. And, uh, I started off in the ticket offices, so after a while I had a, a hatred of passengers. <laughs> um, so my model railways turned to being largely freight only.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sorry, enough of them at work, I didn't want them at home as well. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, then when I started modeling American, obviously, it's a totally different approach from the British way where, to a British model, the train is the, the unit, mm-hmm. but to an American model, they, they worked the indi- individual freight car or wagon, Yeah. and uh, that is a whole different way of operating and it opened my eyes up a lot and brought a lot more interest to the hobby.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... It routed
2: in individual wagons. Yeah, out. yes.
1: When about did you take an interest in the American scene then?
2: Um, Early 1980s. I got, uh-huh. Well, no, the late 70s I got some engage, And then in the early 80s I tried H-O. And I, I fell in love with the H-O because it ran that well.
1: Mm-hmm. American, yeah. heard yeah. the British blow stuff. So... If you got into American in the 80s, and I got into American hate show around about that same time, and yeah, it was the running quality of the models, yeah, and uh, the the old Athern blue box. That's it. I mean, you you made them. You made the waxes yeah. to run you to on your You the on yourself and that, yeah. yeah. God, I mean, that's one reason why it's they lovely. were so. Yeah, that was that, then, it. Was, it was it, that was a re- revelation? That was. Even a whole now, 40 thing.
2: years on, they still run perfectly.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, I still do have some blue box stuff in my basement as well. Yeah, and I think I might even have an old DMIR, the Duluth Musabi, and Iron Range caboose that I haven't even made yet. But yeah, the metal handrails and stuff like that. Tom, you must have some memories of that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, I've got a bunch of that on my layout. Most of my stuff is Ather and Blue Box.
1: Uh-huh. And, yeah, and that now there's, there's there's quite the demand for that stuff now from what I can gather as well. From the serious collectors, uh, I don't know. I just that... my
2: hand up as being against the collectors there because I take the stuff apart and rebuild it.
1: That's something we can discuss. It's like, yeah, as you know, I'm into, like, classic cars. And it's like, yeah, I'm, there are people who will take their... 1926 model t ford and it'll be lovingly recreated as it was when it rolled off the production line and then there are those people who will like I rip the motor out much. and put a chevy v8 engine in it and do all kinds of stuff with it yes yeah, so uh well
2: lots of the rail buses
1: anyway. yeah
2: it's um it's nothing to do with micro layouts but the big layouts i've got in the garage are lots of them that rail buses on
1: there
2: mm-hmm. it's oh and thirty yeah. and I've used the HS scale mechanisms underneath the bodies of the buses so they're all still running yeah
1: and that's what they that's what they did on the prototype wasn't it it's like they would take a bus body and they would like stick a some sort of a car a chassis. or a chassis or something like that underneath it I mean I've, I'm sure you and I have seen the same videos on YouTube of like cars that have just been like put on yeah. truck, it's truck trails yep that yeah there, yeah so incidentally this is totally off totally off track well excuse the pun and you can edit this out later if you like tom but i was on monday when i had my day off work because of the cold i went into glencoe which is a local town and it also has to the coffee shop and it was also has the railroad running through it i got to the main road the railroad was actually blocking The main road because they were putting a high railer on the track. So I mean, they were just like drove it into line and put the front feeder wheels on, and then they'd have to like drive it forwards and drive it back so that the the rear the driving wheels would be on the rails before they could put the rear guide wheels on. So yeah, made me late for the coffee shop, but it was quite interesting to watch anyway. But that's an aside, and you can you can edit that one out of the show if you like, Tom. That's good.
0: No, that's staying in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so what then, Bob, what was the attraction of micro layouts for you? Because, I mean, you'd been in railway modelling for a long time before then, and i have seen your websites and your old models, and you had some really interesting stuff. So what yeah. was the attraction for the micro? Um,
2: I've always gone for the small layouts because you can pick them up and take to an exhibition yeah. rather than just using them at home. But uh, in the mid-1990s, um, by that time I was working in the Railway Telegraph office at Manchester, and the office closed and the job moved to Crewe. So rather than commuting every day, I moved, but I didn't want to live in Crewe, so I, I bought a small house in Sandbach. And a small house isn't very good for lots of little layouts, so the layouts just got smaller and smaller, as it mm-hmm. was. tough me german electrics and me american diesels and me british steam and and, and somewhere to run them all on different
1: little layouts i can hear you on the small house here because like yeah my house is my house is pretty darn small it's, in fact it's only 950 square feet so it's not very big at all but yeah this is the thing it's the space thing so it's a, yeah one thing that we noticed about your layout a lot of your layouts bob is we'll need to talk about these unconventional baseboards that you use like clementine boxes and uh, tea trays and uh, plastic jerry cans i mean
2: clementine boxes come free from the supermarket with clementines in them mm-hmm. and um, they're about what an a4 sheet of paper sized so they're, they're a challenge to put a, a model in
0: uh-huh.
2: and uh, they're made of mdf so the they're actually quite good for working with. There's, there's some I've taken, a lot I've used for storing rolling stock in, and a few are made into layouts.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And others I've just taken about and used for the sheet material in them because it's it's free. Yeah. And um, the plastic bottles were from the last job I had, which was driving for a dry cleaner. Yeah. And he goes through these huge detergent bottles at quite an alarming rate, uh-huh. and they just get thrown in the skip so i said one day i said could i have one of them he says yeah of course you can looking rather puzzled and uh, that's what became farrell sidings the, uh, the little uh what's the tuning fork yeah t- that's ultra portable out uh, of it from Sandbach to london on the train and on the underground to get to do a show down there with it by public transport out wow. back in the day with the layout
1: I secretly have this dream of building a a portable layout that I can take on a transatlantic flight from Minneapolis to, like, somewhere in England for a train show. It's like, that would be the ultimate for me. But it's like, what kind of problems did you you have to, like, uh, work your way around when you were making that? Because, I mean... I can see with the clementine box being something really stiff and rigid, easy to work with, but a plastic jerry can, there's got to be a lot of flexibility yeah, the in there. The jerry can
2: needed a plywood base in the bottom of it first,
0: uh-huh.
2: a hole cut in the end for the stick to come out of. I mean, it's got a fairly big hole in the front so that you can get into and work around.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It went together eventually. Uh-huh. And I've built another one since as well, which was a lot easier having done the first one because I knew uh-huh. I was doing that.
1: What was the reception of the viewing public to a layout in a jerry can?
2: <laughs> thought it was quite amusing.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I think some didn't actually recognise what it was until they stole the screw top on the end of it. <laughs> hmm. They just thought it was a, you know, a fibreglass-shaped baseboard. Uh-huh. But it's not. It's it's soft plastic. Yeah. Um, it, when you see that it's got a, a red screw cap on the end of it, which is quite obvious when you, you look at
1: that and, uh, what it was then. I, I think that's so clever that that you can like take these everyday household objects and subvert them into like model railway baseboards. That's, that's very cool. I wish I had your brain power and that creativity. The Micro Model Railway Dispatch is the journal for those interested in the designing, building and operating of Micro Model Railway layouts. Released four times a year and full of inspirational layouts and articles, it's your gateway to the world of micro layouts. The Dispatch is free and available for download from MicroModelRailwayDispatch.com. There you can download the current and all back issues. You can also show your appreciation and support for the magazine's future through buymeacoffee.com. In addition, you can be placed on the mailing list to access the magazine early by contacting the editor at mmrdeditor at gmail.com.
0: All right, we're going to have a Christmas roundtable discussion tonight. And joining us, uh, besides myself and Ian, we have Ken Hutnick. So, Ken, how are you doing this evening?
2: Uh, Good evening, gentlemen. I am doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: We were supposed to have Sean Brandsetter on tonight, but he wasn't able to join us. But we do have Ken with us today. And Ken, uh, you've entered the uh, Halt Station Challenge, uh, very uh, fine-looking square foot layout that you got there. So congratulations on that as the voting goes on for that. And best wishes and good luck on that. Of course, Ian's leading both of us there, so we're going to have to get out and campaign for votes.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, I'm going to have all my family join the cartel.
0: And hey, let me know which ones are family, and I'll automatically approve them. No, we're just <laughs> we're all just kidding here, folks. We're we're not going to be campaigning, but uh, but we wanted to get together, and uh, this being our uh, Christmas holiday special. We wanted to talk about um, our Christmas memories, but Ian's got some information. He's been doing some research on the history of Christmas trains under the Christmas tree, okay? And they're laughing at me because I keep saying Christmas trees under the train. It's the other way around, guys. Uh, Ian, uh, what did you find out about this?
1: Yeah, this was this was um, an, an amazing voyage of discovery this was uh like i told you earlier i said the wife and i were thinking about buying a lionel polar express set for under our tree you know and that got me wondering about the history of the train under the trees so i decided to do a little bit of research and uh, where better to start than uh, the curator of the National Christmas Center in Paradise, Pennsylvania? Yes, yes, there is such a museum. Yeah. And uh, Jim Morrison is the uh, curator there, and he'd got some interesting facts on the Christmas Center's website. It all stems from the Germans, of course, as do most Christmas traditions. You know, decorations on the tree can be traced to the Germans, but decorations under the tree are also can be traced to to the germans it's known as puts that's p-u-t-z or p-u-t-z for those people like me who come from the correct side of the atlantic yeah and these putzes would be like elaborate scenes that celebrated different elements of nativity And it was a tradition that spread to the New World when families emigrated to the US. You know, there's well-documented records from the mid-1700s of a group of uh, Moravian Christians that settled in the uh, Lehigh Valley in uh, Pennsylvania. Actually, in a place called Bethlehem, believe it or not. But there you go. They'd set up really elaborate nativity scenes in their home. In the mid-1880s, the records show that these, like, developed, you know, and people were, like, creating villages under the base of the tree with model farmhouses that were, like, uh, fashioned after their own houses, you know, and they, they'd they lay these out on a burlap sheet or, or moss, you know. As things developed, you know, cast-iron toys started to be made, and these found their way under the tree, you know, and homes, carriages. But when trains came on the scene and... Model trains were made. They too found their way underneath the trees. It's the German toy manufacturer Märklin that's uh, credited with the first commercial train set, and that was back in 1891. Of course, back then, it wasn't a toy for the masses. You know, these were these were expensive and very, very large things. But uh, the people at Marklin saw the train set as the boys equivalent to the doll's house. You know, they wanted you to buy items for it year after year. So they didn't just sell like train sets. They also marketed extra coaches and wagons so that one year the the kid would get a, a set and then the next year he could get wagons and coaches for christmas getting back to the putts all going the putts seems to have reached its peak in like the 1920s i mean i in my research i found photographs of incredible things vast multi-level schemes with running water in them as well as trains running around under the tree you know because these were incredible things i mean I uh, I found a a wonderful website full of great pictures, and uh, you might want to look this one up. It's cardboardchristmas.com, and the link to the page with these marvellous pictures is cardboardchristmas.com forward slash Papa Ted's, that's P-A-P-A-T-E-D-S, then another forward slash and Christmas 1920s HTML. And these are incredible images. These were just fantastic to look at, you know, Lionel. You can't talk about Christmas Without talking about Lionel, and especially in America, you know, Lionel was a, a huge driver behind the Christmas train set idea. I mean, they were a successful company before the war. You know, they really came onto the scene after the war, into the 1920s, when there was a lot of anti-German sentiment after the war. You know, and of course, this was also true in England with the, with the Hornby in in England experiencing the same increase in sales. You know, straight out the war yeah get into the 1950s and uh toy train sets became more widespread because a company like lionel who actually did you know lionel made compasses during during the second war yes i did you did oh i was hoping to come up with something there that a little gem but but no so their, their techniques in their mass production for the things that they're making for the war effort you know that Mass production on production lines that carries over into the production of toy trains, so that production could increase. You know, department store, sorry, a huge market for this. You know, and uh, they like to have their own store-branded trains for the holiday. You know, Macy's, Macy's, for example. Macy's do still have branded train sets. Trains have been there a long time. Why run a train around the base? This was the question that i wanted the answer to you know i mean it's when you think about it it's kind of a logical thing to do you know there's a a circle of track under an ostensibly circular tree you know uh there's another theory that i found as well that i really like this you know that the the, as i mentioned before these are big trains gauge one standard gauge these are big heavy tin plate metal trains i mean these things take up a lot of room on the floor you know and if you've got people running around the living room full of the christmas spirit you don't want them tripping over the model trains and and doing themselves an injury you know because like i said these are big heavy trains if you stub your toe on that you're probably gonna break your toe you know so you put the train set out of the way under the tree and that's the one i like you know it's just like it's the it's the that's the idea i like it's like it's out of the way it's under the tree so life can go on in the living room with your christmas partying and nobody's going to trip over the toy train so
0: ian what are your thoughts on using concept sketches for layout planning i know you use them several times with your micro layout planning and i also know though that people sometimes think i got to be an artist to do sketching Uh, what are your thoughts on that
1: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, um, the thing is, like, I've always drawn sketches of how I see the layout. I don't give it a second thought. And when people like say to me, "Oh, I wish I could draw like that," and you know, it's like I just don't think anything of it. But it's it's just the way I the way I work. You know, the way things often start for me with a micro is that uh, oh, this is going to sound really weird. You know, but like, I get a feel for something you know it's like i I, I don't want to call it a vision but you know i'll see something in my mind's eye you know it might have come from a photograph that i saw like weeks or months or maybe even years ago you know and something or let's just call it a feel a feel just gets in my in my brain and i have to i have to get it down on paper oh oh, on paper paper or even on my iPad you know just as long as I get that recorded but I mean I don't want anybody to think that these sketches that I'm doing at that level are any good no they're not I mean I was doing one earlier on and it looks like a spider crawling up the Empire State Building to be honest but I know what that drawing means to me So I can see something in it that uh, other people might not. So what I would say to anybody who has doubts about their drawing skills is like, you know, don't be put off by what you see from the really talented layout visualizers. You know, the people that I grew up looking at their sketches and thinking, wow, I wish I could do that. People like Roy Link and Ian C. Rice and lately Paul Lunn as well, I think, uh, you know we all start off with really sketchy sketches that you can't really tell what's what's what with them but, but i mean there are plenty of tutorials out there on youtube that'll teach you the basics of of perspective drawing and that's that's all you need you know just search for perspective drawing on on youtube you know the sketch only needs and Ian, to be I
0: just Sorry, and I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but when you were talking about that with uh, basis of perspective, you know, I I know a lot of schools here in the United States don't have art classes as much anymore as they used to. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was growing up, we, you know, that was a basic thing. We had those. Yeah. But basic perspective, it's pretty simple. I mean, you really don't have to have artistic ability to do that. And that perspective really helps capture that. Look, Mm -hmm. it may not be a scale model but it really does it gives you that visualization that's what you're looking for
1: yeah that's it that's all that's all you need you know it's like if there's nobody teaching it in schools you know there are loads of tutorials on youtube you know if i found some really simple ones all you need is simple one point maybe even two point perspective and it's really easy and you don't have to draw a masterpiece just draw boxes with pointy roofs on them that's enough to give you a feel you know all just a tool when it comes down to it you know you can then follow it up with a scale model or a mock-up you know but but drawing on a piece of paper you know it's a great start and you know what it takes up the least room of all and also there's something really cathartic if you're drawing on a piece of paper and you don't like what you're doing it's really cathartic to like screw the piece of paper up and throw it in the bin you know, it works great I do that for a me lot, by the way <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and here's something else the, the great thing if you use an iPad app which I, I use a lot if you use an iPad app you can actually cheat a lot using those you know you see if if you're on the internet and you see a building a photograph of a building you think oh I like that take a screenshot drop it into your drawing app on your iPad you know, trace it. And then draw, trace over it, and then draw your layout, your track plan around it.
0: A lot of people say, well, you guys are artists. But I have found that even just something very basic, uh, mm-hmm. even if can't, I can't draw figures, so sure. you know what I do? I just put little stick figures in. Yeah. Uh, I just do something to kind of give a concept of what I'm doing. I'm not trying to draw something to where I can put it in a museum. I'm just drawing something as a reference so I can visualize okay. what I'm trying to capture in the layout. Mm-hmm. And I think people need it. Like I said, YouTube is an excellent resource and there are all kinds of instructional videos. I use those instructional videos for my own artwork and they're they're wonderful, useful tools.
1: Yeah. Like I said earlier, the only person the drawing needs to please is yourself. That's right. You know, that is it. Yeah. So don't well, give and don't don't anybody be bothered about producing a masterpiece because only you need to know what that drawing means
0: and speaking of other tools the use of mock-ups and one of the things that i've done i've done this with my uh, my current uh, gn15 layout here the westcott mining mill railway i did it with my uh what Around food services is actually building a i guess one-to-one mock-up what i did was i just lay out the track i measure out on you know either on a table or if i've got some foam core board I just go and measure out what my baseboard size is going to be, and I just start setting up track on it. The thing I like about foam Mm -hmm. core, when I set it up that way, and listen, you can use foam core for planning. You can use homosote or plywood or whatever you like to use for your baseboard after you do your planning stage, but push pins, map pins work excellent for holding track in place. That's what I did with my uh, What Around Food Services, and it gives you that visual look of whether something's going to fit. I have a Maybe a structure kit I have in mind. I've I've got a lot of old structure kits that are still sitting in the box. Sometimes I'll pull one of those out and I'll tack glue it together. I don't need to have all the detail parts. I'll just put it together real basic, and then I'll set it up on my uh, baseboard that I have the track on. Will the building fit? Or better yet, you can use cardstock or you can use foam core board and make simple mock-ups i think ian you're doing that right now aren't you on the cuddle oh yes yeah
1: you you start with the sketch yeah and that it's a natural progress for me from the sketch to a 3d mock-up in fact it sometimes it gets a little bit much you know it's like i had the um, two major structures on the cuddle layout you know and i was messing with the size relationship between the two buildings i got like a small store And I've got the big production factory unit and I was looking at the small store and I was looking at how big I had to make the door for my tallest locomotive to go through. And I was playing the height of that door off against the height of that building. And because this building is so small. I then have to look at the size relationship between the small store and the big production unit. And yeah, I was like adding inches and taking inches away and making the building taller, a little smaller. I was going crazy, but it's all part of the process for me. 3D mockups are really are, are as much a part of the design for me as sketching.
0: Absolutely. And another thing, too, and I've done this as well with my layouts and I'm doing it right now on a current layout. It's not a micro, but it's my current layout is you can take cardstock and have photo images printed out on them. You can Mm -hmm. use the cardstock. I've seen wonderful cardstock modelers. I think um, Ed Traxler has done a lot of work with uh, with cardstock. And then you have also you can laminate them to a foam core board. That's what I've done on one of my factory buildings on my bedroom layout that I have in my trained room. It works wonderful. So even using a, a mock-up, a mock-up can turn into a finished model that's on your benchwork.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's all part of the natural flow. You know, You because you made that building while you were designing the layout, you know, it fits, you know, it fits how you want it to fit. So, so you can't be anything but happy with it, really. Absolutely. OK, so and let's move on to. Planning your micro. Well, it just has occurred to me that we should have probably talked about planning first because you plan your layout and then you build your baseboard. But never mind. We'll talk about planning, planning, planning is an intensely personal thing. And I'll be honest with you to write this down and, and talk about it is actually quite difficult for me because it's it's something that I've always done. And it's I've developed lots of idiosyncrasies over the years. So for me to actually sit back and analyze what I do is actually really quite difficult. So but analyzed it and see if I can come up with some points that uh, that work for everybody. And I think the first thing you've got to consider, everybody needs to consider is what do you want to do? I mean, what's the goal? much the same as doing any large layout planning you know sure you can take a shelf you can go down to ikea and buy a shelf and throw some track on it and bingo there you go you've got a micro i mean if that makes you happy then that's great Uh, yeah maybe you saw a couple of pictures of a scene in a book and thought wow i have to model that that happens to me all the time you know Uh, i'm looking through a book and i think "Ooh." I'd like to build something like that. You know, uh, perhaps, maybe you'll get challenged to build something in an unusual location, like like a drawer, for example, like my wife did to me when we uh, moved into this new house of ours. You know, there was this drawer lying in the corner of the room, and she said, "I bet you could build a model railroad in that." There we go. You can't turn down a challenge like that. But I mean however you're approaching it you need to have a goal so and you get your goal from looking at pictures pictures are the best starting point because that gives you a slice of the real world to work with i firmly believe that the more that you draw on the real world for inspiration the more that you'll get out of your layout and the better it'll be you know my pure spring watercress and nowhere mining layouts, I mean, they've been around for years. I mean, pure spring watercress has been around over 15 years and, you know, it's still a darn good layout. You know, And I think one of the reasons for this is it's the understanding of the prototype that I accumulated through all the research that I did for these models. I mean, if anybody stood and listened to me talk about watercress harvesting at uh, at a, at a train show we will we'll know i've learned a lot about that business and so yeah it's the research gives the layout a purpose and it if that purpose makes it more interesting to the public and if the public are getting something out of it then it makes it more fun for you so you need to have that goal that goal in mind two goals in mind the goal is what you got what what your layout wants to be And then, and what do you want out of it? Do you want the public? Is this something that uh, you're building for yourself, or is it something you want to show off at a show? Because if you can get the public into it, then it's going to be much more fun for you. And so, I mean, I'd even go as far as to say that you could make a pizza layout look a circle of track on a square baseboard. I would say you could make that. Look real interesting and exciting just by working from photographs from the real world. So
0: and in that with the pizzas, I've been doing some uh, Google searches and just doing, you know, looking at some satellite photos. And down in southern Illinois, there's a lot of uh, uh, old uh, uh, mining coal mining operations. And some of those you can see and even some that still exist. There are ovals of track that serve Mm -hmm. the, the coal mine. You can even have a prototype with that. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah. so yeah and see so, so you've start you've been doing your research yourself so sound pre-planning and research is the first step in building a successful micro I and mean, when I'm at so, we've got all my research material and then we start working on a concept and so when I'm working on a concept I never ever consider the four square feet minimum you know I, I like to st- I start with an idea of what I want to achieve. And that has been influenced by the um, by all the pictures that I've got, you know, and then I draw the layout what I want the layout to look like. Now, we've talked about drawing before and a drawing of a layout can be as simple or as complex as you want to make it, you know. So but when I've got a sketch down that I like, then I start to see what size it can be made. You know, I have like building blocks that i use to translate a sketch into a a workable plan and the most important of those is the length of a turnout a point switch whatever you want to call it now i work from working in narrow gauge then i'm working with pico set track generally and so i know that's the size that a, a code 100 pico set track point takes up it's about about six and five eighths of an inch long and so that's the kind of thing that dictates how long your layout's going to be i mean and, and you know that if it's like two inches wide over the wide end of the turnout so you know that uh, if that's about two two and a quarter inches wide yeah you, you know that to pull a track straight and parallel that's going to take another two and a half inches in width as well so that is the basic building block of all my designs is the uh, is the turnout length so i mean some people like to cram as much track as they can into a micro you know it's almost like they have to make up for the lack of space i mean that can cause problems itself with clearances and siding lengths you know but uh, we can talk about the minutiae of the fine points of fine-tuning your design at a later date but uh because we could get really 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 detailed and picky at some point there but uh you know i like to give my layout i like to give them things room to breathe you know and once again that comes from studying the real thing yeah and um another thing that's very important for me is it's like i call it like the suspension of disbelief you know you've got to make the viewer think that this isn't four square feet of model railway make them think it's larger than that i mean you have to use like tricks little visual tricks to make them think that that make themselves lose themselves in that four feet you know it's like using like view blocks whether it's like hiding the road off stage or it's something in the middle of the the layout that just like makes the viewer move so that they have to move their eyes around to like follow the train you don't want to see a train just go straight make an uninterrupted journey from left to right on your layout baseboard that's you're going to really emphasize how small it actually is there so um so and all another thing don't make i don't try not to make my little trains run in a straight line you know it's nice to get a little s curve in there as well if you, i get a little bit of Backwards and forwards motion in there, little tricks like that to make things look like it's actually bigger than it is. And recently, I've also seen some outstanding back scenes that use like a receding perspective that make. these I mean there's a, there's a stunning back scenes. And it's like you start with like full scale that you're working in right at the at the front edge of the back scene, uh, and then this perspective is forced. And very violently forced. And it's in a couple of inches you can go from, well, from like an inch to an inch and a half. You can go from like, say, four millimeter scale to like Z scale. The perspective, the forcing of the perspective there and the way that these back scenes are like shaped to force the horizon up a bit. They're stunning. So, I mean, these are just some of the tricks that you can use to make things look bigger than they actually are.
0: Be sure to visit the Micro Model Railroad Cartel Facebook group and join in on the fun. If you're not a member yet, just search for the Micro Model Railroad Cartel on Facebook. You can also find all of our past podcast episodes at the podcast blog page, and that address is microcartel.blogspot.com. You can also email us with your questions and comments by sending them to microcartel at AOL.com. From Ian and myself, have a great day. Thanks for listening.